You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hello, it's a quick national security news from National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole. Before we kick off, the committee is hosting a luncheon discussion with the General Counsel of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence on February 5th. Check out AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity for details and registration for the event. Hi, I'm Elisa, and joining me today is a friend of the cast and well-known polymath and nice guy, Harvey Rishikoff, a man who has held a ridiculous number of major national security jobs in Washington. Thanks, Harvey. I'm glad you could alight for a few minutes. Thank you so much. Well, as you know, it's a unique pleasure to be here, as always, with you two guys. And uh, as it's an amazing moment in national security law. I feel whipsawed from the news yes. just today. My neck hurts. Every, yeah. I'd say every hour, we literally get something new that requires extraordinary amount of attention and commentary. Incoming fire. Yes. And to focus on just one of those things, there is a 89-page opinion that just came out of the Second Circuit on FISA that we would love to discuss. Uh, sure. It, it's really a fascinating opinion. Um, I recommend it to you all, particularly those who want to become more familiar with uh, the Section 702, which was enacted in 2008, uh, in order to deal with a a series of questions in FISA reforms. So the gravamen of the issue is Section 702 allows the Attorney General and the Director of National Intelligence to, quote, authorize jointly the targeting of persons reasonably believed to be located outside the United States to inquire foreign intelligence information. Uh, And 702 differs from usually traditional FISA procedures because first, it does not require a probable cause determination before undertaking surveillance. It does not require the government to specify, as we would in a FISA application, the nature and location of each of the particular facilities or places at which the electronic surveillance will occur. Uh, Section 702 provides in advance targeting non-U.S. persons located abroad as a category, and the government does not have to return to the FISA court to seek approval before it undertakes surveillance in a specific individual or his or her accounts under Section 02 procedures. That's the gravamen of this issue. So why uh, the is The theory this being if you're OCONUS, you're outside the country, the Constitution doesn't apply to you if you're not a U.S. citizen, right? Right. We've had this, it's an interesting uh, question that in our jurisprudence, the critical factor is citizenship and location. Right. And we have used those two concepts in order to create our extraordinary Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. So it's sort of you're out of luck if you're not a U.S. citizen and you're outside of the United States. That is the least protected category, and we find that historically we have been able to then, as we say, go up on you, depending on the situation, once we decided that you're an appropriate target, and we've explained to the FISC why we believe so. Uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and an appropriate target would be statutorily an agent of a foreign power. So under historically, yes, that's what, that's what the probable cause is required to trigger the FISA warrant, right? That's, right. It's, there's a probable cause, but a probable cause of being an agent of a foreign power. 
So in 702 context, you don't need the warrant, but you are focused on that. You are focused on collecting intelligence overseas involving overseas people, which are often vital to national security. Correct. And so what, what did the court say about that? Well, what triggered this particular issue uh, for, I'm sure, devoted uh, podcast followers um, we, in uh, 2013, if we remember in Clapper v. Amnesty International, uh, the government would say would provide notice in, when it would have, and it made this presentation an oral argument, that prosecutors would provide notice to defendants in cases where evidence was derived from Section 702 surveillance. Prior to that, there had been no affirmative position made by the government that they would make defendants aware of the fact they might have been subject to 72 surveillance. After amnesty, uh, after Clapper, uh, the government said it would. And in this case, after the defendant had pled guilty, uh, he was then informed subsequently that some of the evidence flowed from a 702 surveillance. He then said, well, I believe that is a warrantless surveillance. Uh, I believe I have a Fourth Amendment right to appeal. And when he did his plea deal, he carved out the idea that he'd be able to go forward to challenge the constitutionality of the 702 material that was used in his particular conviction. That's why we are where we are today. There was a district court decision. The district court decision found that there had been no problem. Um, Mr. Hasbrandami appealed. And there are three issues that the the Second Circuit Court, um, I think judges known to all of us, Judge Lynch, Carney, and Droney, then had to deal with. So the first issue was, was there um, incident collection of communications, which is defined as collection of the communications of individuals in the United States acquired in the course of the surveillance of individuals without ties to the United States and located abroad, is permissible in the 14th Amendment. Uh, so you if, if you're wiretapping a KGB officer overseas, living overseas, that KGB officer's communications usually involve somebody else overseas, but let's say somehow it intercepted a U.S. person by accident or, you know, wasn't deliberate, it wasn't the intent of the 702. It's incidental to the live communication that we, and the, and the case saw, uh, discusses, this is something that we refer to as the PRISM collection that was came forward and the court using the PCLOB report goes through the PRISM forms of collection that takes place. Which is an interesting thing because is the PCLOB report really part of the record? Correct, which they make it and they quote from it. So as you know, this is the report that put forward for the privacy group that, right, that, that we have statutorily. Right, right, which is an interesting thing because I am not sure that they were constructed to provide record material in these kinds of cases, but I... Well, they explained the process. Yes. In a declassified they had an explainer, manner. right? So <laughs> as a result, the court uses it. So I recommend the opinion for anyone who wants to understand the 702 process, because they use a declassified document that they then put into the opinion. Then the second issue that came forward was that there's something called inadvertent collection. That's, oops, we were wiretapping somebody and somehow through whatever technique we use, we grabbed a communication from some U.S. person not intending to do so. Right. It believed it was a non-U.S. person located abroad. And we inadvertently make the mistake. And one of the reasons is because we call it upstream collection. These are very large databases 
that are scooping up reams of information of emails and calls. And therefore, it's not surprising that you may have an inadvertent collection of a U.S. citizen. Um, Wait a minute. You mean this technology is not perfect? Well, it's, not a, it's always not the technology. It's the people using the technology, right? Yes. Everyone has a bad day. Exactly. So even, an all, al- even an algorithm, right? There are some bad hair day algorithms, so you have to yes. deal with it. So then the question becomes, um, what happened with that data? And for the court, it raised uh, a novel constitu- constitutional questions, which um, that... That there may have been accidental collection occurred in the case, but that information has to be determined whether or not it tainted the investigation and prosecution of the defendant. So we're saying, and the court is saying, we expect these things to happen. And then the question is, when you have the data, what is the appropriate way in which you can query the databases? And we have a number of databases. We have databases that the FBI has. We have databases that the NSA has. We have databases that the CIA has. Now, they all have their databases. They all have 702 material in those databases. So the question is, who is doing the inquiry, and what are the conditions of the the query? And the third big question of this case is, when querying the databases of stored information derived from 702 surveillance, Uh, The querying depending on the particulars of a given case, such as what databases are queried for what purpose under what circumstances, the court says could violate the Fourth Amendment. There's a possibility. And thus, it requires the suppression of the evidence. Uh, Therefore, the district court must ensure that such querying was reasonable when they actually started banging the data with this, and we have to find out what the cues were. But no information about queries conducted as to the defendant was provided to the district court below. So in other words, there's no indication at this point in the record. Certainly there's the P-Club edition, but right. there's no indication that the FBI, for example, went back into these wide receptacles of data, shot a, a U.S. person's name into some Boolean algorithm and started probing around to see what could be found. There's actually no indication in the record that even occurred here. Correct. That's why the Court of Appeals is sending it back to the district court for fact-finding to see what the circumstances were under which the queries are made of the 702 material that may have resulted as a result of either incident collection or inadvertent collection. And it sounds like, from what you're saying, that what could happen next is that there could, assuming arguendo that there's something there, there could be the old-style, fruit-of-the-poisonous-tree, full-taint type of analysis. Possibly, but what often happens is you have to see the weight of that evidence in conjunction with the other evidence that was the Court of Appeals and the District Court have argued uh, has been lawfully collected and then see a balancing as to whether or not there's so much evidence that was, quote, lawfully collected, if there was any evidence unlawfully collected, and there will be a balancing test to see whether or not the conviction still sustains, even if you throw that evidence out. And you're probably looking at those additional facts and information and evidence collected for things like independent source uh, of information, um, what was known to the government prior to any querying that may or may not have occurred. But it sounds like it's an old situation in which you're just looking to see, hey, is this really why this case was opened and further investigated? 
that it was an efficient expedition, that there was appropriate standards used. It was reasonable for the government to bang those databases based on the information that they had received pursuant to the lawful collection of the data that they had. So I don't see this as a, a, a big one. I think what's going to happen, we'll see what happens. I'll go on the limb. I think DOJ will let the district court judge have discovery, see where the district court judge comes out. And if the district court judge concludes that there was appropriate information that was reasonable for the government to do what it did, we will move on. And the case, will, I think, will be an interesting case that we look back to say, under what criteria is it appropriate for the government to use information that may have collected incidentally or inadvertently? And what is the process by which we query 702 data in the process of trying to understand in the search of finding bad, bad actors. And it'll be interesting to see because ODNI will have certainly some role to play here because that information, depending upon who owns it, which agency owns it, will have sort of a proprietary interest in it and in the any technique that might have been used to collect it. So there are a lot of actors involved in any further record to be developed. Um, and, you know, query whether or not the PCLOB report, no matter how masterfully and thoughtfully it was prepared, is really appropriately part of the record, because um, I'm not sure that's why the PCLOB well, was constructed. But this wasn't... Uh, I think it's good. I think it's the, the PCLOB um, discussion made it clear to the American people the process by which the government uses the data and how the data is queried and what the probable cause is required. I think that it's there's a lot of secrecy that surrounds this particular program. And even it's very rare for a court of appeals decision to have redactions. And there are redactions in this particular opinion. And the court actually says, uh, this opinion has been reviewed by appropriate intelligence agencies for the purpose of redacting material that includes or references classified information. After an initial redaction, the panel met ex parte with representatives of those agencies in order to discuss potential substitutions or modified phrasing that would minimize the need for redaction and the possibility that certain information referred in the opinion could be classified, thus further reducing the need for redaction. The meeting was transcribed for the record, and the transcript, which is itself is classified, oh, yes. will be perceived, will preserved as part of the uh, record on this appeal in the custody of the Class Information Security Officer with the Department of Justice Litigation Security Group. I, it just goes to show that the court is, feels a bit awkward, that we would have redacted public opinions dealing with fundamental core jurisprudential aspects of the law in the Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Yes, and I fully agree with you, and I agree with you that the PCLOB reports, Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, for those who don't know, has a certainly a public education value. But once again, I would say record material should be, you know, based in the record at trial. And unless that was uh, somehow stipulated to, I just wonder if, if, you know, in an effort to surface things that remain ca- classified, we might not begin to expand our record to include things that may or may not be presently accurate, depending on when they were dated. But that's my point. And my last um, point, which I find fascinating in the opinion, which for those of us who are devotees of the rule of law and the role of federal courts to police the federal government, the court says, however, we have 
it, it says it is of course regrettable that any part of an opinion disposing of a criminal appeal is unavailable for public inspection. However, we have neither the authority nor the expertise nor the inclination to overrule classification decisions made by the relevant executive branch agencies. We respect the need for such classification of sensitive national security information and appreciate the cooperation of the agencies in the effort to limit the need for modifications and redactions. So this is extraordinary for a court of appeals saying, we do not have that expertise. We're deferring to the government. We will hold meetings, which will be also classified, to discuss whether or not it's appropriate to keep the information classified in the opinion. But this, for that, is quite a fascinating aspect for those of us who think it's very important to have the And it courts. is. And, uh, you know, the, the long line of cases um, discussing the Classified Information Procedures Act, frequently the court says they recognize they don't have the expertise, that this is something that career professionals in the intelligence agency are, you know, intelligence agencies are uniquely uh, qualified to assess. And you find that kind of deference over and over again. So the balancing is tricky. Um, and I, I might add that if you look at the Constitution, you will see that the concept of the Congress taking certain elements of the record and classifying it secret is actually was perceived by the framers and is one of the rights that the Congress has that in order to be able to protect the record of sensitive information. Yes, that's right. They did, and they had their own secrecy at the time of the founding. But there was another um, sort of massive seismic event last week, um, not unexpected, but that is that the long-awaited uh, Treasury regulations pertaining to the CFIUS process, meaning the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States process, were finally published. And just to briefly recap... That's okay. I'm fine. There's some damage going on <laughs> in the country. We're good. So uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States is the committee uh, interagency committee. It involves, I believe, 11 agencies that review any foreign investment in American companies uh, at a certain level in a certain amount that might affect things like critical infrastructure. And so that's been a somewhat nebulous process. It's been totally unclear, but um, uh, it's been very regimented and well-run. And in this place now, in this case now, there are very precise regulations. Harvey, what does it say about critical infrastructure and cyber and sort right. of a growing understanding? So I think the first issue to recognize is, for those who are listeners, um, these um, rules were promulgated January 13, 2020. And that uh, the department has said you have uh, 30 days to comment. So anyone who's listening who would like to comment, you have an opportunity in order to affect what's going to take place with the rules. And it's a real recognition, I think, of the growing concern that the federal government has about the role of foreign investment in our national security and critical infrastructure. So is the idea that sometimes, you know, China, Chinese investors, for example, not they're not the only ones, might buy a company for no other purpose than to acquire um, intellectual property or put that company out of business, eliminate it as a competitor, or gain some sort of national security strategic advantage? So the answer is yes, but as you can a- a- understand, this, is, this issue sort of flies in the face of what we understand as open, free, and economic competition. Yes, everything is changing now, isn't it's, it? It's quite an extraordinary phenomena. And one of the, on the, uh, this issue is also uh, related, and I think we'll talk about it, is the current and recent economic and trade agreements with the United States and China, which also raises issues of intellectual property and technology transfer. 
so we have a variety of actions by the federal government trying to figure out what is the appropriate role for us to police these types of foreign investments. So what's also fascinating is, um, first of all, it's still primarily voluntary, this particular act. Right, voluntary to the extent that you get a safe harbor if you participate and get clearance. But there can be consequences such as the unwinding of a transaction, which would mean you'd literally, your business deal, however a trillion-dollar Google deal, would have to be unwound. So uh, this will not shock you, but when the rule came out, there was a flurry of legal notices by the major law firms uh, in D.C., because this is going to be an extraordinary um, CFIUS Lawyer Employment Act. Full employment for CFIUS lawyers. So for those of you who have never heard of CFIUS and are in law school, I strongly encourage you to write your third-year paper on, and a number of my students are doing that, on FIRMA and CFIUS, because this is going to be one of the more fascinating areas in which we police foreign investment on what we understand to be you know, critical technologies. Um, the new authority applies to non-controlling investment in that produce, design, test, manufacture, fabricate, or develop one or more critical technologies. Also, own, operate, manufacture, or service critical infrastructure, or maintain or collect sensitive personal data of U.S. citizens that may be exploited in a manner that threatens national security. And how are they defining critical infrastructure since the original sort of oft-used definition derives from the Homeland Security Acts, I believe, of 2002 and 2003, and is otherwise codified elsewhere with more precise terms. But Right. So they, in the fact sheet, what they argued was that CFIUS may review in critical infrastructure certain transactions involving U.S. businesses that perform specific fu- functions owning, operating, and manufacturing, supplying, or servicing with respect to critical infrastructure across subsectors such as telecommunications. Kind of makes sense. Utilities, mm. energy, and transportation, that. each identified in the appendix to the regulations. Yes, you don't want a situation where, say, your natural gas is dependent on Russia suddenly, and all they have to do is shut you know, shut off a switch, and then you're on your knees, national security Well, you remember we also had an interesting case in which... Um, the subway cars that were being deployed that were carrying individuals to Pentagon seem to have um, Chinese manufacturers, mm. perhaps Chinese cameras for, quote, security reasons. Yeah. And you can understand that might be an awkward national security issue. One would wonder, you know, especially with that facial recognition technology that they're using so they can categorize people in China with credit. Well, I was just yes. at a meeting recently in which an individual does a lot of work with China on Bitcoin, interesting enough. Mm, where all the Bitcoin mining operations seem and to be centered. He was brought into us a, a, uh, in Beijing, I think it was Beijing or Shanghai, he said. This is 2016. This is 2016, 2017. And uh, he was brought into a room that he said it looked like the um, sort of the captain's uh, sort of the captain's um, base in, in, in Star Trek, in which the captain's <laughs> chair was able to look at an extraordinary number of screens all in front of him. Mm. And the person running in the captain's chair, the Chinese Captain Kirk, so to speak, said to him, oh, um, how would you describe yourself? And the gentleman said, well, I'm Caucasian. I'm about 6'2". And he says, what are you wearing today? I said, I'm wearing my 
outfit, which is, you know, a black turtleneck and a black pants. And that's how I described myself. And he said, and then to which the Captain Kirk said to his operators, okay, I'm looking for a 6'2", Caucasian, wearing black shirt, wearing black pants. And instantaneously, after a few number of moments, his face appeared getting into the cab outside his hotel. Okay. When you first said what the question was, I thought he was asking him on a more interpersonal level, something like, how do you see yourself? Well, then uh, Captain Kirk said, please follow this individual. And the man said, this is 2016, 2017, my entire movement, once I got in that cab, was completely tracked. So that is sort of the world in which we are moving into. Okay, so we need CFIUS. We need yeah. robust CFIUS. A lot of students think about CFIUS, write about CFIUS, learn about CFIUS. Uh, it is fascinating. Uh, and then the critical technologies, may, uh, CFIUS may review certain transactions involving U.S. businesses that design, test, manufacture, fabricate, or develop one of the more critical technologies is defined to include certain items subject to export controls and other existing regulatory schemes, as well as emerging and foundational technology control pursuant to the Export Controls Reform Act of 2018. Mm, and that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Any defense articles and the like? Well, it's, I think it's quite fascinating. Um, given where we're going with foreign investment in these technologies and the way China, as you know, is sort of outpacing us in its direct investment for, let's say, artificial intelligence machine learning, will, will, will we be developing almost two separate economies tied to the technology innovation base facing each other, our Western base versus the Chinese base? Is this one of the outcomes that may be happening in wake of how we're approaching, for instance, let's say, Huawei, mm. and how we're explaining to our allies that we don't think it's too keen if you go forward with this. But if you have Huawei equipment, what will be our relationship with you is going to have a huge impact on our foreign relations. Sure. It's starting to look like the configurations in 1984, you know, Oceana here and something else there, a standoff of maybe... It uh, is a possibility. As you know, our friend Jason Healy has the article he wrote a few years ago about what the different futures are. Yeah. Of cyberspace. Okay, that was decidedly dystopic. So let's pivot. (laughs) But we did get a trade deal with China. Um, Yes. But, Query, is it really a trade deal if China can still give massive government subsidies to its private companies, one? And two, I think the question here is we've never had a – we've had multiple trade deals with China over the years. There hasn't been a single one that they didn't break almost immediately. So, Query, is this a victory or is this a PR stunt? What have we really gotten here? Well, as of course, we have the famous phrase of we have to wait and see. (laughs) Uh, But the other sort of critical issue is how we figure this out as the two super economic powers going forward. What is the vision that we have? Where would you like to see us five years from now from an economic perspective with the Chinese. I put it to you, we have have not had enough thought about what the end game is for where we want to be economically with China. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not it's time for us to have an industrial policy, 
what should be that industrial policy, who should be in charge of that industrial policy. It's a very un-American thing to think of having either a Japanese like Miti or a Dijerist state that the French have. Often you pick losers and not winners. So this to me is one of the great sort of $64,000 questions, maybe $64 trillion questions. What is the actual vision we have for engaging the Chinese in an economic competition and cooperation? I think, you know, the problem right now is so many of these decisions are made in a political climate as opposed to long-term thinking. And I have said over and over again, I joke, I think the greatest national security threat to Americans is our our short-term thinking. If we can begin to game this out in more of a chess game long-term, I think... Some sort of construction, perhaps within the government, perhaps a public-private partnership in this situation makes a lot more sense. Yes. So I've been doing this for a long time. And um, I would say that the criticism of the American or Western capitalism being driven by quarterly profits and quarterly statements Mm. is a long-term criticism. I'm I'm old enough to remember when we were competing with the Japanese. Right. The coming war of the Japan. And that Japanese number one. And the same arguments were put forward, but then where is Japan today and where is our economy today? Because I would never underestimate, I think, the number of internal pressures that exist in the Chinese economy. And even though they're now growing at a rate of 6%, it's much less than they had hoped for, anticipating what they've done over the last decade. So there is internal pressures that are and political pressures that are quite fascinating. And we just have to look to see what's going on in Hong Kong as to see part of the pressures and what's and how the mainland is responding to that. So I think it's, an, it's a fascinating, we'll come back five years from now and say, where are we with this economic competition with the Chinese? Well, I certainly hope that we're doing brilliantly and that anybody who's living in a Rust Belt town is, is living in a robust economy where their house has value. That's what I would hope. So that's another fascinating question as to the old economy and the new economy. And that transformation of the old economy versus new economy, if you look across the West, has also, I think, been provided a political base for a number of political movements. Absolutely. Let's, you know, Brexit and even Mexit. So uh, we'll have to see where we are. But this is the, the, the consequence of politically what's happening. I would remind our listeners that we did have Jeff Ferry on, who talked quite a bit about um, what could be changed in ter- terms of corporate rules of governance, things like CEOs not being permitted to sell their shares for longer periods of time mm-hmm. that might make them, instead of just trying to bloat their own incomes and suddenly leave a company in despair, um, that would give them greater stewardship of the whole company and the people involved. Yeah, so in my old days, we used to refer to this as organized capitalism. Mm. And that uh, Germany was famous as being an organized capitalist state. But it raises the issue for our world, what are economic regulations and rules that will have huge impacts on our national security? One normally doesn't think of this, but increasingly when you think of the impact it has, more and more individuals have to start thinking about what we call legal political economy. Absolutely. These are, are big things. 
And we also recently had a rumor, unless that rumor is true, that the Space Force is now in a territorial battle for existing Air Force talent. Uh, the NDAA, which the National Defense Authorization Act, is the bill specifying appropriations to the military. How can the resources from the Air Force be moved to the Space Force without violating Congress's intent as laid out in that roadmap of a bill? Yeah, so it's, a, it's another classic fascinating question because, you know, the NDAA uh, has now recognized uh, space as a warfighting domain and established as a U.S. Space Force in Title X as the sixth armed service of the United States under the U.S. Air Force. Wow. Yeah, and, and in doing so, it provides the Secretary of the Air Force with the authority to transfer Air Force personnel to newly established Space Force. To minimize costs and alleged bureaucracy, the Space Force will acquire no additional billets and remains with the President's budget request. So it's fa- the conference sort of agreement creates a chief of space operations. So I'll be brushing up your resume, Lisa, because mm. this might be an interesting job for you, for the U.S. Space Force, and they will or report directly. <laughs> they will report directly to the Secretary of the Air Force and become a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So they're going to be sitting with the Joint Chiefs during the first year. The CSO may also serve as the commander of U.S. Space Command. The CSO will provide updates to the committees of jurisdiction every sixty days, with briefings and reports on implementation, establishment status. It also requires a Senate-confirmed Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Space Acquisition and Integration. As the senior space architect, they will provide renewed focus on the acquisition of space system as the chair of the Space Acquisition Space Force Acquisition Council. They will synchronize with the Air Force Service Acquisition Execution on all space system efforts. They will oversee and direct the Space and Missile Systems Center, Space Rapid Capabilities Office, and the Space Development Agency an assistant secretary of defense for space policy as a senior civilian in the office of secretary of defense for oversight of space warfighting. So for me, this is an amazing technological moment because if you have, quote, weaponized space and you have the technology to be able to put, as we used to say, steel on target, but why don't we say force on target, kinetic force on target, you start thinking about what is the role of the Navy? What is the role of the Air Force? Uh, this is, you know, above all, as the Germans once said, uber Alice. This is the ability to control the high ground. And if technolo- technologically speaking, we get into that world, it's going to really question what much of the role is of some of our significant traditional armed forces. Well, I personally am worried about Darth Sidious. Um, but this is, uh, I have to say, this is fascinating. I will say this. We are several years behi- behind China and Russia, who already have uh, space forces. So it is interesting that we're suddenly doing well, this. Well, yeah, we're thinking about it. You realize how significant satellites are. So all of our precision military weapons are tied to satellite timing. Yeah, I don't want our enemies up there poking around and knocking them out of the sky. Yes, so you should know that there's a new effort going on that the ABA, of course, is supporting and involved in, is the writing of the new space manual. And yes, I'm happy to report we will be having guests on in the coming weeks to discuss that. And they're the ones who were actually involved in it. And it's some of our Aussie friends. And so we're very excited about it. But the same way years ago we thought we might need a talent manual for cyber, 
increasingly we're coming to the conclusion we may need a space manual for space operations. Absolutely. So hold on to your seats because we're going to be bringing that to you shortly. You can count on us here at NSLT. Um, And just to wrap it up, we're going to go very quickly back to what we can't get away from, the white elephant in the room. Oh, my gosh. So today we're recording on um, Tuesday, the 21st of January. And I just want to point out that today rules for the impeachment hearing are being agreed to. Interestingly enough, there's nothing in the Constitution about rules. Well, it's, let's say, I would say the Constitution is rather um, vague on this particular <laughs> issue. Yes. As a matter of fact, if you, I always teach when I teach con law. I always point out the drafting problems of our framers because the only way you know that we're going to have a chief justice is, ironically enough, the chief justice concept or title does not appear in uh, Article 3. It actually appears in Article 1 discussing impeachment. That's how we know we're going to have a chief justice because the chief justice is going to be in the center chair for the impeachment proceedings of the Senate. But we only know that because it's they never mentioned that there was going to be a chief justice. You know who could have fixed that? If we'd also had founding mothers instead of just founding fathers. Well, they might have caught that. I, I, I understand that. But even my mother sometimes had typos in her notes to me. <laughs> my mom did not. <laughs> and, I, and she did write memos to me to ah, keep me in line. That explains so much. It, it, yes. I get it. But I would say on this issue, I'm going to say that uh, I think we've done this before in the podcast, but I'm going to read it again. How do, how do we understand the impeachment process? And people have often you know, referred to the senators as jurors. The chief justice in his when it pointed out they are not jurors. They're sort of quasi-judges slash jurors, finders of fact. They have a very unique function that they play. And as Hamilton said in the infamous uh, Federalist Paper 65. Read well, that all the way through, everyone. A well-constituted court for the trial of impeachments is an object not more to be desired mm-hmm. than difficult to be attained in a government wholly elective. The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, we now would say public men and women, and in other words, from the abuse of violations or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may, may with peculiar propriety, be, do, be dominated political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to society itself, and political is in all caps. The prosecution of them for this reason will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties more or less friendly or imbecile to the accused. In many cases, it will connect itself with the pre-existing factions and will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence, and interest on one side or on the other. And in such cases, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocent or guilt. I think it's hard to put Hmm. more eloquently what we are currently experiencing. Yes, it's pretty wild. Well, we're going to end this week's news roundup here, but there will be much more news to follow in the ensuing days.
All right, we're going to hyperlink the Hasbajrami opinion, the FISA case, uh, news of the Air Force versus the Space Force controversy. Um, And as for the impeachment, I just want to remind all of our listeners that at the ABA, you would be encouraged to watch the hearings for yourselves. Reread the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and any other material drafted by the founders. You will not find rules on impeachment. But reading the Constitution is a good practice for any lawyer and should be like hair washing. Repeat, repeat, repeat with some frequency. Thanks, Harvey. Thanks, Nicole. And we'll see you back next week with James Baker, former general counsel of the FBI. And the following week, we'll be joined by Peter Bergen, who has just written a wonderful book called Trump's Generals. Thank you again for tuning in. And like all legal podcasts, we remind you that the attorneys on our show today are appearing in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Remember to check us out on Twitter at ABA NatSec or online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, where you can find information about our upcoming event with Jason Klatenik, the general counsel of ODNI. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your pod, podcast listening app of choice. Five stars. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.